friends, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer as we're now going to look to his word and what he would have us to see from it. He is our faithful God, as we've thought about so many times already this morning. So let's go to him knowing that he's faithful and expectant that he will hear our prayers and answer them. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you admitting our need and weakness. Our hope is simply that we have been united to your Son in his life that he lived in fulfilling the law, in his death to pay for our sins, and in his triumphant resurrection that has secured our resurrection and inheritance. And we pray that we would see him as we look to your word this morning. And that as we see him, we would believe and trust in him. That we would cast ourselves completely upon him. We pray that we would see you and your faithfulness in the ways that you deal with us. And we pray that we would see our sin and our need as we stand before you. Not so that we would despair wholesale, but so that we would despair of ourselves and trust in Christ alone. We pray for this now to happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This song of Christians from all time is All I Have is Christ. I realize that song was written in recent years, but it is the song of the saints for the millennia, and it will be the song of the saints forever. With that in mind, that all we have is Christ and that the Christian life is fundamentally about him, we are back again today in the book of Genesis. We are in This sermon series in this wonderful book of the Bible, the first one, many will know, uh, as you open the inside cover and bank right, you find yourself in Genesis chapter 1. At the outset of this sermon series, we determined that this was not just a sermon series through Genesis, but it was a sermon series through Genesis as Christians. So we are seeking to understand the book that way, as Christians should understand the book. So questions that we ask of every single passage in any passage of Scripture, but certainly in the book of Genesis, this is true. Three questions. One, what does the text say? It's important. What are the words on the page? Second, where does it, the passage, fit with the rest of Scripture? And by the rest of Scripture, we mean all of it. How does it fit within the entirety of biblical revelation? And then third, the last question that we ask, and perhaps the most important one, is where does the text that we're looking at stand in relation to Christ? Where does it stand in relation to Jesus, his coming, his work in the place of sinners, his resurrection, and his imminent return when we will be finally saved? So with that in mind, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be looking today at a shorter section than we've been doing. We're just going to be looking at nine verses this morning from Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 9. As you're turning there, even if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about that. We're going to get the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me. I want to make a couple of public service announcements. Number one, PSA number one. This is a short text for this series, like I just said, and that's on purpose. There is a lot going on with Abraham. There's a lot going on with what God is doing with him and through him. And then there's a lot that that means for us. So this passage is significant from the perspective of redemptive history. And so in the sermon today, we're going to be doing a lot of connecting this passage, Genesis 12, 1 to 9, to the rest of the Bible. So just be prepared for that. We're going to understand Scripture with Scripture. That's always the thing to do. 
So we're going to spend time this morning, not just in the book of Genesis, but we're going to look at Romans, we're going to look at Galatians, we're going to look at John's gospel, and we're going to think together about these things regarding Abraham and faith and the gospel. We're going to reflect on those things and try to unpack them. So that's public service announcement number one. So Bible drill this morning, get ready. Number two, I'll be using, this is not as important, I will be using the name Abram and the name Abraham inevitably, interchangeably in this message. Now the conscientious among us, the detailed people, might be worked up by that. Because they say, brother, he did not have the name Abraham given to him until Genesis chapter 17. What on earth are you doing? Calling him Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Well, of course, for us, we're looking back on all of this. And we're going to be looking at a lot of stuff in the New Testament that refer to him as Abraham. Inevitably, I will too. And I trust we're all good on that. So now that we've thought about all that stuff together, now that we're kind of ready for what we're going to do, let's look to the text itself. And I'm going to read it for us, beginning in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amen. We thank God for his word. So my plan for us this morning is to give this message in three parts. Three parts, and then there will be a conclusion at the end of the third part. And I'm going to try to explain each part as I go, because I think if I tried to unpack it all right now, it might be confusing and maybe frightening to you. So we're just going to go part one, two, and three, one at the time. One comment to make at the outset, before I even give us the header for point one or part one, is that here in chapter 12 of Genesis, we have the beginnings of the covenant God made with Abraham. So this is referred to, and you'll hear me use this language today, as the Abrahamic covenant. So this is a big covenant in the scope of scripture, and we have the beginnings of it right here. The covenant made with Abraham is later confirmed and expanded in chapters 15 and 17 of Genesis, respectively. We'll get there in the coming weeks. So part one, we're going to look at the text. We're going to make some observations from the text. Two things effectively happen in this passage that we're looking at today. Two things. Number one, this is all in part one. The first thing that happens is that God calls Abram. God calls Abram, verses one to three. Put your eyes on verse 1 in particular. The Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, we know some stuff about Abram's country and about his kindred and about his father's house. If you were here last week, we thought about this briefly together. 
Put your eyes back up into chapter 11 of Genesis in verse 28. We see there that Haran, who is Abraham's brother, died in the presence of his father Terah, also Abraham's father, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So we see that. And then there's also Joshua chapter 24 that tells us some stuff about Abram's country and his kindred and his father's house that are important. Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, Joshua is standing before the entire congregation of Israel. They have now entered the promised land. This is a big moment. And Joshua says to the people these things. He's going to give a history of what God has done. Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. We thought about this some last week. I'm not going to labor it too long this morning, but we ought not talk about the call of Abram without considering this reality. That Abram, before he was called by God, was with his family in another country serving other gods. In other words, Abram, in our modern vernacular, was a pagan. I think a lot of times when we talk about Father Abraham, we only tend to think of him as the man of faith, and we think of him as an upright and respectable figure, even a righteous man. But the presentation of the Bible is that he was just like you and me. He was a sinner and worshiping other gods, not the Lord. And God determined in his grace to act in grace toward Abram, to call him and take him and lead him and make promises to him and bless him. It is not as though Abraham was a righteous man who was seeking God and God saw that. Ah, there is a seeker and I'm going to use him. God called and took him and made promises to him. Consider these words of Paul from Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Like Abraham, we considered this briefly last week, we trust in the one who justifies the ungodly. That statement might gloss over you, maybe you've heard it enough, but that statement is significant and scandalous to many people. The majority of human beings who profess to be Christians in the world would not agree with that statement. They would think that God justifies godly people. There is grace imparted to them. There is righteousness infused into them. And they become better. At which point, at the end of all of that, God will save them. They cooperate. People cooperate with God in salvation. That's the view of the majority of human beings on the planet who profess to be Christians. It's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture is very clear that God is in the business of justifying ungodly people, declaring them righteous. Not only, though, this is huge, not only is it on the front end that God justifies ungodly people, but then, like, makes them righteous, so now it's cool. 
to where we are just inherently righteous now and don't sin anymore. If God were to look at our hearts, this group of people, if God were to look at our hearts as they stand right now and analyze the state of things, he would see vast, vast amounts of sin clinging to our hearts. We, as we consider often, are declared just, but we are sinners still. We are riddled with sin. So the question has to be asked, how can sinners like that, like us and like Abraham, ever be declared just and righteous before God? How could that be, brother, because you're telling me that not only was I a wretch before, but that I still sin, and I'm declared just in God's sight? How? By being credited with the righteousness of another is the only answer to that question. To be credited with the righteousness that somebody else has, that you don't have, that you desperately need. The only way for sinners to be declared righteous and just in the sight of God is to be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ counted for our righteousness. This is the message of the gospel, that in Adam we died. In Adam, death and sin came. But through the obedience of the second and better Adam named Jesus, we are counted righteous with his own righteousness, with his own obedience, so that we stand before God just. How does a sinner get that righteousness? What does he need to do? This is where it gets even more scandalous. Believe. Believe. Trust in Christ. Certainly, brother, there's got to be more to it than that. Believe in Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ and on account of Jesus, God counts the unrighteous righteous. It was true with Abraham, and it's true for us. So when you see Abram and you see Abraham and everything that God's doing with him and through him, and we're going to think about his life in the coming weeks, remember this that he was called out of sin and out of false worship. And he, like us, is counted righteous before God through the grace of God and through the promises of God in Christ. Let's put our eyes back on verse 2. Verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3, we see God say some other things to Abram. He promises Abram that a nation would come from him. We'll come back to that. The Lord promises to bless Abram and to give him a great name so that he would be a blessing. The Lord says that he will bless those who bless Abram and he will curse those who dishonor Abram. And then the second part of verse 3, the Lord says that through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're going to come back to that verse. That verse is as significant as almost any when it comes to redemptive history and how the apostles understood the plan of God. Second thing, though, so I told you there were two things that happened in the text today. Number one was God calls Abram. Number two, very simply, Abram goes. Abram responds to the call of God. You see that in verse 4. How simply the scriptures state things. So Abram went. There it is. He did what God told him. Verse 5, he takes his wife, he takes his nephew Lot with him, along with all the other people that we are told they had acquired in the land of Haran and all their possessions, and they head to the land of Canaan. 
Then in verse 6, Abram arrives in the land of Canaan. And then in verse 7, another big promise is made from God. The Lord promises to give the land of Canaan to Abram's offspring. We'll come back to that as well. Abram builds, we see there in the second part of verse 7, an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then in verses 8 and 9, Abram continues to travel through the land that God has already said he's going to give to him. And he again builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. So all that by way of part one. Now part two. Part two is going to be two points of teaching, and I'm using that word on purpose, two points of teaching on the Abrahamic covenant. So track with me. This is not seminary class time, but this is good for us, that we would understand in robust ways what the Scripture reveals. I know that you want to understand the Scriptures, and so we're going to do this together. Two, te- two points of teaching on the Abrahamic covenant. Number one, we're just going to consider the covenant itself. A few significant things about it. First thing that we can say about the Abrahamic covenant is this, that Abraham is the covenant head. He is the federal head of the Abrahamic covenant. When I use that word, that term, federal head, I mean one person stands for the whole. One person represents everyone else who is under the covenant. That's what Abraham is in this particular covenantal arrangement. Adam, for example, was this in the covenant of works that we talked about from Genesis 2. Adam is the covenant head who stands and represents everyone else who is under the covenant. Noah was the covenant head of the covenant God made with him. So Abraham surprises no one that he is the covenant head of this covenant. Verse 2, verse 3, and verse 7 make this very clear. That all the blessings of the covenant will flow through Abram. And that all the curses will flow through him. That's in part what it means for him to represent everyone who is under the covenant. The blessings and the curses flow through him. Second thing we can say about the Abrahamic covenant is that Abraham is promised a nation and a land. Those are big deals. A nation and a land. Look at verse 2 regarding the nation. And I will make of you a great nation. Look at verse 7 regarding the land. To your offspring I will give this land. This, brothers and sisters, is the beginning of Israel. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel, a nation that would have a land. Abraham's physical descendants would be a nation with a land of their own. God then, the next thing we can say about this, is that God says that a blessing to the nations would come through Abraham. That's verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth, literally all the peoples of the earth, will be blessed. As Paul will cite this in the New Testament, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So to be very clear, that blessing to all the earth is the promised offspring of Abraham, who is none other than Jesus himself. The blessing to the nations is Jesus and what he would do. Through Abraham's descendants whose land is Canaan, the Christ would come. And to even use the language of Paul in Galatians, the mystery of Christ, the mystery that's been hidden for ages in God, that is the mystery of Christ, would unfold in this nation, in this land. The covenant God made with Abraham promises a descendant, an offspring, who will bless the peoples of the earth. This is important. The covenant God made with Abraham does not provide 
a relationship to that promised offspring other than through a common genealogy, a physical progeny. The only way that Abraham's children would be related to that offspring is biologically. The promised offspring would provide the blessing. We're going to think more about this. The promised offspring of Abraham would be the one who would bless the nations. And whether a person would enjoy that blessing had everything to do with that person's relationship to that offspring, not that person's relationship to Abraham. That distinction makes a world of difference. Whether or not a person enjoys the blessings of the promised offspring of Abraham has everything to do with that person's relationship to that promised offspring, not that person's relationship to Abraham. The purpose of the nation, Israel, is to bring about the blessing to the nations. The old covenant, in other words, will give birth to the new, quite literally. The old covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham, Moses, and David that governed Israel as a nation would give birth to the Christ. And the kingdom of Christ would come through the kingdom of Israel. Second point of teaching on the covenant God made with Abraham. And this is how the Abrahamic covenant relates to the new covenant. How does the Abrahamic covenant relate to the new covenant? First thing we can say about this relationship is that the Abrahamic covenant promises the new covenant. The blessing for the nations is the new covenant in Christ Jesus. The benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the blessings of the new covenant made available to the world. This is promised through the covenant God makes with Abraham. And you shall all the nations be blessed. This is the promise of what's referred to as the covenant of grace. This is the promise of Christ and the new covenant is promised in those words. In you shall all the nations be blessed means the new covenant is coming. Second thing, how does the Abrahamic covenant relate to the new? It carries it within itself. Track with me. It carries it within itself. From the beginning, the Abrahamic covenant does not simply anticipate the new covenant. As one writer has put it, it is quite literally pregnant with the new covenant. That is because the mediator of the new covenant will literally be born from Abraham's descendants and from the nation of Israel. As Samuel Renahan writes, quote, the Abrahamic covenant provides Christ, Christ provides the new covenant, close quote. Next thing that we can say about the Abrahamic covenant in its relation to the new is that it typologically pictures and prefigures it. The Abrahamic covenant points to the new covenant. It is pointing to the new covenant that is greater than itself. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promises people and land and even kings will come from Abraham. We're going to see more of that in chapter 15 and 17. But the promise of a people points ultimately to a people who are not descended from Abraham physically, but spiritually. The promise of land points ultimately not to Canaan, but it points to a better country. That is a heavenly one. And the promise of kings points ultimately to a king who would be greater than David, who would sit on the throne of David forever, who would rule with justice, and whose name would be the Lord is our righteousness. There is no covenant before Jesus that reveals the new covenant as directly as the Abrahamic covenant reveals it. The unconditional and free gift of earthly promises to Abraham and his physical children most clearly conveys the free and unconditional heavenly promises 
to God's elect. And Abraham's belief in those greater heavenly promises is set up as the paradigmatic model of justification by faith in all the Bible. It's a big deal. So in summary, track with me as I just kind of read this to you, this paragraph of just kind of how we think about Adam and Noah and Abraham and everything that's going to come through them to Christ. The world was cursed through Adam. And it was stabilized through Noah. God said, I will maintain, sustain the creation. Then, through the covenants made with Abraham and his descendants, a special nation was formed. In and through this nation, the mystery of Christ would unfold. Through this nation, a blessing to the nations would come. A son of David, a Messiah, would save the nations through a new covenant. Thus ends the teaching on the Abrahamic covenant portion. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to move to part three, where we're going to reflect together. We're going to reflect together on Abraham, on faith, and on the gospel. Three parts to part three. The note takers in the room are wigging out, and I'm sorry today. This is just one of those Sundays. So part three, the first thing we're going to reflect on is that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Galatians 3. We read it together earlier. We're going to look at portions of it again right now. When I say the gospel was preached to Abraham, I trust maybe you're like, really, bro, is that a stretch? Is that not saying a little bit too much that the gospel was preached to Abraham? Not at all, actually. That's what the apostle Paul says. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, right here. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis 12, 3, according to the Apostle Paul, is the preaching of the gospel to Abraham. In this promise, the gospel was preached. And we've already considered a decent amount of how that is the case. Second thing I want us to reflect on for a moment is Abraham and faith. Abraham and faith. We're going to stay in Galatians 3. The early flow of the third chapter in the letter to the Galatians is this. The Galatians have begun by the Spirit through faith. And they will be perfected by the Spirit through faith. Then Paul uses Abraham as an example of God saving sinners through faith and connects that to the Gentile believers in Galatia. Verse 7 of Galatians 3, we see there that those who are of faith are Abraham's children. Full stop. Obviously, that is not according to the flesh. It is according to something else, that people are Abraham's children. Verse 8, God had always planned to justify the nations by faith, and so the gospel was preached to Abraham. The promised offspring would save the people. Verse 9, Abraham, at the end of verse 9 of Galatians 3, is described as the man of faith. And we're told that all those who believe as he did are his children. All those who believe as Abraham did are his children, not according to the flesh, not according to his covenant, but according to the Spirit, and according to the pattern of faith, and according to the new covenant of Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3, verses 12 to 14, we're told that the righteous will not live by the law. Can't be done. 
The righteous live by faith, and the law is not of faith, because the law says, do these things and you'll live. And then verse 14, we're told that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that is the blessing of the gospel, has come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Then we have verse 16 of Galatians 3 as we move through. That verse reads this way. You remember the promise that God made to Abraham about a land even. Paul picks this up. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Again, the promise of salvation is made to Abraham, and it's made through Christ and on account of Christ. We can't miss that. It's critical. Then in verse 29 of Galatians 3, it reads, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if you are trusting Christ, you are Abraham's offspring spiritually, according to faith, according to promise, and are heirs of the kingdom of God according to Christ, because of your relationship to Christ. Now, the most extended piece of our reflection. Third thing we're going to reflect on in this part three. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. And he saw it and was glad. It's a cool thought. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to be surveying a number of verses beginning in verse 12. I'm going to summarize a lot of this, and then we're going to look pointedly at several verses towards the end of the chapter. The context of John 8, 12 to 59, is that Jesus is teaching in the temple. There are a number of people present, including scribes and Pharisees in the audience. In verses 12 to 30 of John 8, Jesus makes some big claims. He says some big things. He says that he's the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus tells the people, you're from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, but I'm not. And unless you believe in me, you'll die in your sins. He then says that when you have lifted me up, then you'll know that I am the Christ. He's talking about his crucifixion. When you have crucified me, you will know that I am the Christ and that I don't do things on my own, but rather... I speak just as the Father has taught me. Then we're going to pick up in verse 31 of John 8. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says to his listeners, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To which the Jews respond in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been slaves. What do you mean we will become free? Jesus responds in verse 34 that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Verse 36, but if the Son, S-O-N, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then this in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. What's he talking about? According to the flesh, right? I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Verse 38, Jesus says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, 
You do what you have heard from yours. The Jews again appeal to Abraham. And they say, Abraham is our father. Then Jesus, second part of verse 39, says, if you were Abraham's children, it's like, all right, hold the phone. He just said they were Abraham's offspring. But now he's saying, if you were. So clearly there are two ways to be offspring of Abraham. So Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, according to the Spirit, according to faith, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. If God were your father, verse 42, you would love me because he sent me. Then verses 43 and 44, Jesus tells his audience that they cannot bear to hear his word because they are of their father, the devil. Then verse 47, Jesus makes it clear that whoever is of God hears the words of God and the reason why his audience does not hear them is that they are not of God. Which brings us to verse 48 to 59, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. But want to set up the context for us. In verse 48, the Jews respond. They say, okay, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan? And people will know that Samaritans were religious and ethnic half-breeds from a Jewish perspective. So this is a jab at the circumstances of Jesus' birth and the identity of his father. Because he didn't have an earthly father, as we know. And so there is all kinds of jabbing and poking and prodding and making fun of him in this statement. We're right in saying you're a Samaritan, aren't we? And that you have a demon. You're a religious and ethnic half-breed, and you're from hell. Then he says, verse 59, 49 and 50, I don't have a demon. I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I don't seek my own glory, though. My father seeks my glory, and he is the judge. Verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, that statement right there. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And what's his word? He's already said it in this chapter. Believe in me and you will be forgiven and saved of your sins. If you keep my word, you will not taste death. And in verse 52, the Jewish audience loses their minds. They're worked up over this. And they say, now we know that you have a demon. Because Abraham died. And the prophets died. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus responds in verse 54 and following. He says, I don't seek to glorify myself. Effectively, that would be a meaningless pursuit. It is my father who glorifies me, and this is the one of whom you say, he is our God but you don't know him. I know him, and I keep his word. Then this, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews are like, bro, you're not even 50. Not even 50. And have you seen Abraham? A lot of times we can sort of read the Bible in this super like domesticated way. But I imagine this was a riot, quite literally. Like, homie, you are not 50 years old, and you're saying stuff about Abraham seeing you? You're talking about people not dying who keep your word? What on earth are you talking about? And then Jesus, in verse 58, just to do the final mic drop, says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that statement, verse 59, prompts the Jews to try to kill him because he has just claimed to be God. 
I, would, I could talk for a moment about the people that stupidly say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's obviously absurd if you just read the Scriptures. Now, I want to go back, though, to verse 56. We make a big deal, rightly so, about verse 58. Amen. Jesus is God. He's the Lord. But verse 56 sometimes gets a little like, just boop, boop, just kind of bumped over, and we don't spend a lot of time looking at it. Verse 56 of John 8 has a ton to do with Genesis 12, 3. The gospel was preached to Abraham. Jesus in John 8, verse 56, effectively looks at the Jewish crowd and says, you are all excited and worked up about Abraham. And Abraham rejoiced to see me. It's a big deal to a Jewish audience in that context. Throughout John 8, we even saw it. The Jewish audience keeps talking about Abraham, and more than that, they keep appealing to Abraham as the ground of their relationship with God. Don't miss that. They keep appealing to Abraham. Abraham is our father, thereby we are in right standing with the Lord. But Jesus has already said, you rejoice over Abraham, and Abraham rejoiced over me, but even more than that, you appeal to Abraham as, your, as the ground of your relationship to the Father? Abraham appealed to me. He believed in me. You appealed to him, he appealed to me. The news about me was preached to him. And he believed the promises about me. He rejoiced over me and appealed to me because I am his righteousness. He rejoiced over me and appealed to me because I have secured salvation for him and for everyone who is united to me. Oh, how Abraham needed Christ. And oh, how all of Abraham's children need Christ. We need him to be freed from the curse of the law. We, we're going to sing in a little bit about how Jesus has done that. He has freed us from the curse of the law. We read in John 8 about how we are slaves to sin on our own, and we will not be free unless we are set free by the Son. We need Christ to set us free from the curse of the law because we have all broken it. And lawbreakers are cursed of God. We are guilty of breaking all of God's commands and lest we ever think we've kept one of them, we must remember that the law doesn't grade on a curve. You keep it perfectly. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. There is no, oh, well, you did pretty well, and you get a sticker. The law crushes sinners. And so we deserve judgment. We need forgiveness as much as we need anything. We need our sins removed from us, and Christ has accomplished both. We are forgiven in him, and our sins were laid upon him, and he took them away from us as far as the east is from the west. And so God no longer remembers our sins. And as we have talked about before, God doesn't forget anything. It's not that he doesn't 
know that they're there. It's not that he has somehow had a lapse in his memory. It is that he no longer deals with us according to our sins because they have all been laid on Christ. He has dealt with our sin in full in the way that he crushed his son. And so he can look at you and me and say, I've blotted those out. And I don't remember them anymore. And I've taken them from you. And I've moved them as far away from you as the east is from the west. Jesus has taken all of our sins away. And as my son said to me once at the breakfast table, Dad, he's never giving them back. To which I said, bro, that's a good word. He has taken our sins, and he's never giving them back. But we also need Jesus, not just for forgiveness and to be freed from the curse of the law. We need Jesus to fulfill the law's requirements. God is very clear that if we're going to dwell with him, we must not just be without sins. We must be righteous. We must be holy. We need Jesus to fulfill the law for us because we're not righteous. And so, not having a righteousness of our own, we look to Jesus who provides us with his very own righteousness and holiness. Through faith, his righteousness is counted as our righteousness. Sometimes people, in talking about what it means to be justified, mean really well when they say, couple of things. Well, to be justified is to be as though you have never sinned. That's true, but it's only half of it. To be justified, some will say, is to, be, is to have your slate wiped clean. True, but that's not the whole of it. To be justified means not only that we have been counted as though we have never sinned and our slate has been wiped clean. It is to be positively credited with every holy and obedient act that Jesus ever did. This is why we can say to one another that everything that God requires of us to be holy and righteous in his sight has already been done. And we receive it by trusting in Jesus who did it in our place. He did so much more than give us a clean slate. Giving us a clean slate is like, all right, your record's been cleared, now get out there and don't disappoint God. And we will fail every time. But to be given not just a clean slate and a record of sinlessness, but to be given a perfect and full record of obedience and holiness and righteousness that's unshakable, that's how sinners can know that they know that they know that they're safe. I know that I know that I know that I will be with God forever because I have peace with him through what Jesus did and the work of Christ is enough. On our deathbeds, brothers and sisters, just think of it this way. Can we be encouraged in this life by our obedience? You better believe we can. As we look at our lives and as we're changed and we're not like we used to be, we can be encouraged by what the Lord is doing in us. Amen. We should encourage each other that way. When we see growth, we should share that with people. Brother, I see how you're growing. Sister, I see. Praise God for how you've grown. We should do that. And at the end of the day, that obedience and the encouragement that we can derive from that is never the ground of our peace. It can't be. The ground of our peace 
has to be outside of us. And anything that's going to be the ground of our peace, you need to be able to give it to somebody who's dying. This is a great filter for you. To ask whether what I'm about to say is gospel or law, to ask whether what I'm about to say is good news or not, ask yourself that. Can I say it to somebody who's dying? Because on our deathbeds, none of us will be comforted by our obedience. Not one of us. Because we will all know, and if we think, if we're pointed to what we did, if anything, we're going to be grieved because we're going to think, I could have done so much more. Looking back on my life, even to this point, I could have done so much more. I could have loved so much more. I could have sinned so much less. What is the only comfort in life and death? It's Jesus and his righteousness counted as ours and his death in our place for our sin. You give that to somebody who's dying and that's comfort and that's peace and that's hope. That brother, sister, you're safe. You're going to be with him because of what Jesus did for you. That's gospel, and that's good news. And it's what we herald to one another. Have we done enough to be saved? Have you? Have I? No way. But Jesus has done enough to save the vilest of sinners. And we praise God for that gospel. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day because of that gospel. He saw it and was glad, and we rejoice over Jesus with him. We, too, see Christ and are glad. And just as a closing thought along these same lines, not only did Abraham rejoice to see Jesus' day, not only do we, all the saints of all time have rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Sometimes people wonder, how were saints in the Old Testament saved? Simple answer, by Christ. They rejoiced, like Abraham, to see the day of their Savior. They were hoping in him. May this encourage our hearts, because I think often we feel alone in a world and in a culture right now that is increasingly hostile towards what we believe. We can feel alone or crazy or marginalized or whatever, pick your word, but we're not alone. Saints, through history, have trusted the same promises that we do for thousands of years now. Scripture bears witness that Old Testament saints were believing in the promises of God through Jesus, not completely, but sufficiently. Did they know everything that we are privy to? No. But they had his promises, and they believed them. Consider Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance as he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew that there was a land greater than Canaan. Amen? And Abraham was not alone in believing God that way. This was the faith of the Old Testament saints. They knew there was a greater reality than their earthly inheritance. They knew that there was a greater reality than the types and the shadows of which they partook, the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all of these things. There's something greater coming. The promises of God realized in Christ. 
And so they, the Old Testament saints, are one with believers today, and we are one with them. The church, this is a scandalous statement in American Christianity to some, the church did not begin with Jesus and the apostles. Far from it. The church began with Adam and Eve. And it began with Noah and Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob, with Moses and David. They believed and greeted from afar something which they never fully understood that has now been fully revealed to us. We all, the saints from all the ages, have the same inheritance and the same homeland. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are standing in line with these saints, trusting the promises of God. We, too, are looking for a better country. And we, too, are trusting Christ to bring us there. And praise be to his name, he will. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for Christ most of all. Every time we come to your word, it's astonishing how the takeaway is Thank God for Jesus Christ and what he has done in the place of sinners to save us from our sins. Lord, your plan of redemption is staggering in its wisdom and in its consistency. The ways that you have revealed it astonish us. We pray that we would always be in awe of you in the ways that you work and save. And we pray that you would give us faith in your son and that you would give mercy to us as we are sinners. We pray for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.